I put a carabiner through my hand, basically. Dawn was like, get her off the boat! She's injured! And, you know, oh, we don't need, we can't carry her into the Southern Ocean. I'm going, I'm not getting off the boat. I'll be okay. And, oh, we had this good old yelling match. And I was then actually confined to kitchen duties down below because I really couldn't use my hand. And, boy, I was so angry. And that is the most scary thing I've ever been on a boat for like, I think it was a 24 hour tow. We broke two tow ropes on the way and yeah, it was just horrific and it was freezing cold, it was snowing and um, yeah, we finally got off the boat and I can't even remember where, somewhere up Newfoundland way and we just walked straight off the boat up to a pub in our wet weather gear and sat there for a day, just like. <laughs> um, it definitely highlighted that, um, you know, we've, we can do it. And um, if you're given the right resources, we had a fantastic crew on that boat. And from the minute I turned up in Sydney, it, it was, I'm not saying we didn't need the guys, but there's there's a massive skill set within women sailing now. We were given a massive opportunity, you know, being given that boat, and we wanted to do them proud, and I think we really did. Leah Fanstone and Kara McMaster were trailblazers for New Zealand women's offshore sailing in the 1990s. The pair notched up two laps each around the globe in the Whitbread Round the World race, once together on the all-women's crew on board EF Education, and they tell their stories from those epic races in this episode of Broadreach Radio. None of those circumnavigations were particularly easy, as they battled a catalogue of bad luck, breakages and broken promises, not to mention old-fashioned attitudes, but they made a big statement for women's sailing. Leah and Karen have so many memorable stories from those races and talk about everything from mutinies and swimming in the Southern Ocean to haul sails back on board to messages from the American First Lady and getting smothered by rotten fish. This was a really fun interview, but we also delved into various important topics around women's sailing, including how female sailors can get noticed, as well as last week's news that women's teams will be involved in the next America's Cup. I had a good time putting this one together, so I hope you enjoy it too. Well, joining us on the show today is Leah Fanstone and Kira McMaster. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's thank a real you pleasure. for having us. I'm in Auckland in lockdown, uh, so talking to you obviously from home. But where are each of you right now and what are you up to, uh, starting with Karen? Yeah, I'm in Auckland as well and um, at home with a couple of teenage girls. So it'd be fair to say we're all going a little crazy now that we're heading into our fifth week of Level 4 lockdown. So keen to start getting things back to normal soon. And Leah, you've got a bit of freedom in your life. Explain. Uh, yes, well, I am not in Auckland, um, thankfully. Sorry, Aucklanders. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am now residing in a place called Pakawa, which is about 15 kilometres west of Turangi, overlooking the beautiful Lake Taupo. So that's where I am. Thank you. Loving it. 
Yeah, we're sounding a bit jealous uh, these days, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but the main reason I wanted to get you on Broadreach Radio was to talk about your experiences in the Whitbread Round the World race in the 1990s. Um, you know, you two were a couple of the first Kiwi women to compete the race, both doing uh, two laps each. So in many ways, you were trailblazers for female sailors in this country, particularly offshore female sailors. Um, there's obviously a lot to unpick in there, um, but before we dive into it, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the news from last week that the America's Cup teams must also field a women's team in the Cup. Um, you know, how significant, Leah, do you think this decision is for women's sailing? Oh, look, I think it's absolutely wonderful. It just brings a whole lot of uh, positivity for uh, young sailors, young female sailors, they know that they've got an opportunity now because the opportunity's been presented to them. Uh, yeah, otherwise, they never know whether they're going to be have a look in. So anything like this is positive for them. And, um, you know, a few negative comments on social media last week, like, oh, you know, second fiddle to the guys, give them a smaller boat, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's, I think that's just rubbish. They're, these guys have been given a great opportunity and I think it's a great step forward. So, Kieran, do you think the event needed to introduce something like this? And, and we look at other events around the world where, you know, quotas are being brought in as well. Yeah, I think it, it was coming for sure. And um, I just think it's an amazing opportunity for, um, you know, girls like Leah said coming through but also just to learn off these guys who've already, you know, been do, doing so many cup cycles and the knowledge that they have. And it's going to be an amazing way for the female sailors to, you know, to gain that knowledge that we've really been lacking up until now. So I can, it's only a win from what I can see. Do you think, Leah, we'll see uh, females eventually on America's cup boats in their own right? Oh, hey, wouldn't we like to see them on there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, oh, look, I think time, yeah, I think it's only time, you know, with all this uh, equality and inclusivity that we talk about these days and how much more it is seriously um, a contender. So, uh, yeah, I, I truly believe there will be, for sure. I mentioned in that, that intro, um, Kieran, that, you know, you were a couple of trailblazers, you know, did it take longer for the sailing world, in your opinion, to get to this point than perhaps you thought it might have? Because in the 1990s, we saw the advent of a number of all women's crews, you know, not only in the ocean race or the whip bread as it was back then, but the America's Cup as well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's disappointing it hasn't come sooner, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it's funding and, um, you know, just there was a, a break probably of about 10 years where there was just not really... The opportunities for female sailors, you know, to keep pushing through in the different campaigns, and um, I think we're feeling that now. So, you know, what's coming in the future is is going to be awesome and um, well needed. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I was just thinking about, you know, you just got to look at the Sail GP at the moment and how they have included girls, and I know they're not racing, but um, they are on the boats for the training. And um, I know the girls who are on the New Zealand Sail GP New Zealand boat and the comments that they have made and what they have learned or what they're learning by just being there and being on the boats through all the training and all the pre-race um, testing and everything, they're just loving it. And 
you know, they are just totally positive about the whole experience. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw that one in there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it would be great to see them uh, on the boat at some stage, um, certainly racing. But, you know, let, let's just jump back those 20 years. Um, you know, what was it like, Karen, for you as members of, of all female teams in those early and, and mid-1990s? And, and I guess among the attitudes that were swirling around, you know, did, did people take you seriously? Um. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty green when I first got into that whole side of it. And so for me, I was just <laughs> like a you know wide-eyed puppy, just loved every minute of it. I think I'm pretty cruisy as well, so I don't take on board a lot of the negativity. You know, there, there always is going to be some some guys that just don't think, you know, we should be staying in the kitchen and things. You're always going to get those attitudes. But, um, the, you know, the people that we ended up working with and sailing with were all very receptive to us being there. And I just loved, the again, the knowledge that we gained from them. So, um, yeah, I just count myself really lucky. And I think, um, you know, that carries through even to now. I still sail on a lot of boats, you know, where there's, um, you know, plenty of guys and girls in mixed teams and it works really well. And that's because of the groundwork we put in 20 years ago. What impact then do you think that Tracy Edwards and that maiden crew of the 89-90 Whitbread had on people's opinions, Karen? I don't really think at the time people realised how much Tracy and the team, you know, those teams did back then. And it wasn't until, actually, I didn't even realise until I watched the movie, you know, that, that Tracy Edwards put out about the maiden crew. You know, I was um, amazed and horrified at some of the, the male attitudes back then. But, you know, they just kept on trucking on and went out there to prove everybody wrong and did it. And it's just such an inspirational story. And, you know, I just I think it's amazing. Did you confront any sort of uh, confronting opinions or, or comments uh, in your sort of early days, Leah? Um, hard to really remember, like back in 93, 94. Uh, I mean, it, it was so different then. And, um, I mean, we we weren't taken that seriously because the campaign was just thrown together with a pretty uh, – crazy uh, skipper and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think people thought we were a bit of a joke. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, But also people were really supportive as well, especially let's just say leading up to the race, like literally weeks out, this is the beginning of 93, 94, we had no, virtually no money. We were scrounging around the whole time for people to help us. And people, rather than people saying, oh, look, we're not even going to bother to help you, it's just a waste of time, they actually went the other way and they gave, oh, now I'm talking the blokes off the other teams, they gave us all the help they could. You know, I had friends, uh, because I'm a Kiwi, I knew a lot of guys in the other teams and they'd come and help us with stuff and go up the rig and look at, you know, so there was a lot of help. Sure, um, I suppose there was a bit of negativity as well, but much like Kieran said with her first when she came in, when I was in there in 93, 94, the same as her, I was like a bloody excited puppy the whole time. And you just ignore all that stuff. You just want to crack on and get on with it. So, I, yeah. 
I just put shutters on, filters, you know, filtered out all the negative stuff and just soldiered on because there was only thing I wanted, one thing I wanted to do, and that was leave the dock and get get on with the race and just forget about any of that negative stuff. So as you mentioned, Lee, you were involved in that 93-94 race on board what eventually became known as Heineken, originally the, called the US Women's Challenge. Just backtrack a little bit. How did your involvement in that race come about? Yeah, well, back in about 1991 when I decided I wanted to race around the world, <coughs> um, I might have been 1992, I just started to, you know, just do all the stuff I needed to do, did offshore, some offshore miles and stuff. Anyway, Nance Frank, who was the skipper of US Women's Challenge, came to New Zealand to do our nationals. And uh, she did it to just try and uh, raise awareness of her campaign. And, you know, they had T-shirts, US Women's Challenge for the Whitbread Round the World Race. And that was all about just uh, gaining exposure for her. And uh, and I was sailing in the same regatta, and um, Karen probably was as well. Uh, and I just met Nance and I just said to her straight out, I want to be on your crew. And um, and I just became her best friend <laughs> and uh, convinced her to invite me over to America to do the Newport Bermuda race with them. And sure enough, three months later, I was on a plane and over there and I did the Newport Bermuda race with them and uh, came home um, with a sort of promise from her that if she ever, if the thing got pulled off, that I'd be on the crew and next thing it just one thing led to another and, and I ended up over there. I mean, it was nuts. I had so little experience, but I was, I don't know, it was my pure charm. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what it was, but I managed to convince her that I needed to be on the boat. And she always said, oh, well, every Whitbread boat has to have a Kiwi on board, so you're my Kiwi and you're coming. And uh, that was it, really. <laughs> But you had a fairly unhappy time of it in that first leg, um, you know, and words like mutiny were bandied about as up to, I think, almost half the team were reported to walk away on arrival in Ponta del Este um, at the end of that first leg. And skipper Nan Nance Frank also withdrew. You know, what was going on? What was the story? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, leg one was a complete, uh, disaster. Uh, we had so many breakages on the boat, and the half of the crew were kind of Nance's mates from America, uh, who were. I mean, I didn't think I had any enough experience, but these people were even worse. And so, you know, half the crew, including myself, um, had some sort of idea how to sail a boat, and the others were just playing a game, really. Uh, so by the time we got to uh, Punta, uh, half of us decided that if we didn't get rid of Nance and the others who were really uh, a liability on board, uh, that we would walk away because we didn't want to risk our yeah carrying on in in that uh, frame. Ah, uh, but then fortunately, um, Nance decided to leave, and uh, at that point, uh, the owners of the boat, who at that time were uh, David Glenn and Rossfield, um, managed to talk Dawn into coming, and Dawn came with a few of her 
mates from Maiden and um, David uh, managed to do a deal with Heineken, which we didn't know about until we got to Fremantle. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like about a week, I don't know, it might have been 10 days before we were due to leave Punta and head into the Southern Ocean, Dawn arrived with, uh, you know, her her gang and uh, off we went. Well, you know, that must have been a great injection of energy and, and skill and everything. But I guess what sort of leader was she? Uh, you know, I read a piece earlier in the week when a, a member of the crew, crew suggested to her that you might want to put a reef in the sail when in strong winds. I think you were sailing near Tasmania. <laughs> She responded, if God wants to take the sails down, he will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Dawn was pretty um, pretty strong in her opinions. And uh, I was terrified of her when she first came. I was very intimidated by her because probably with my own uh, worries and doubts about how I was going to perform. So, yeah, um, always kind of like, just trying to um, impress her and make sure that I kept my job on the boat. Um, but she was, no, she was very straight up. Uh, I think she did threaten to fire me a couple of times around the world, but once again I managed to um, charm my way back on the boat and convince her that she needed me. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know, clearly I managed to keep on the right side of her. But no, she's a you know she's amazing. She, boy, talk about trailblazers. I mean, Dawn is one of them, and uh, we just all began to respect her more and more as we went around the world. And um, you know, I totally have a huge respect for her now and what she's doing. And um, I thank her for keeping me on Heineken and trusting me. And it all went well in the end, you know. You talked about the fact you had really no money and poor gear and lots of breakages. So you, you got that new name and a new sponsor after the second leg, becoming that Heineken, which meant you got some new gear. You know, what was that injection like for the team? Oh, it was just amazing. I mean, yeah, we literally had no money and suddenly we were being looked after properly. Uh, we weren't really earning a wage or anything, but at least we had uh, hotel beds and each stopover and food and everything. Uh, so, um, and yeah, and also we had the resources to fix things on the boat. Um, we had the resources to bring people in at stopovers to, to do the work, um, which prior to that we, we didn't have at all. And um, and the crew just started to feel way more coherent and um, we started having a lot more fun and enjoying ourselves. And, um, yeah, it was, it was magnificent. It was going from a real horror show to uh, something far more positive and optimistic. Something not quite so positive um, for you. Soon after departing Auckland, you got your hand caught in a winch and you needed 17 stitches. So, you know, given that it was a long <laughs> a long leg, was this just your way of getting out of watch duty or, you know, what, what happened? <laughs> yeah, actually, that was one moment where Dawn did try to get me off the boat, seriously. <laughs> we were, yeah, we were uh, just in the um, Turi Passage, actually, and... Um, 
Were we? No, we were just going by Ch- Channel Island, and um, it wasn't a winch. I, God, in those days, our runners were rod runners, and they were really heavy, and we used to have to tie them down to leeward. And I was down to leeward, getting bloody washed water all over me, and I was trying to tie it down. And I put a carabiner through my hand, basically. And um, Dawn was like, "Get her downstairs." get her off the boat, she's injured, and, you know, oh, we don't need, we can't carry her into the Southern Ocean. <laughs> I'm going, I'm not getting off the boat, you know, it's not that bad, and I'll be okay, and, oh, we had this good old yelling match, and and then she's, and then uh, obviously we carried on, and uh, Sue Crafer, who was our medic on board, she stitched me up, and I was then actually... Um, confined to kitchen duties down below because I really couldn't use my hand and boy I was so angry you can imagine I wasn't allowed to get up on deck and I had to cook for everyone and uh yeah but I was able to stay on board and eventually it came right and you know I ended up back on on deck and doing my watch and everything but um yeah, that was a bit of a low moment for me. I felt like an idiot, but it was just one of those accidents that just happens. Yeah. Is it fair to say the meals were tasting a little bit bitter and maybe there wasn't enough sugar in the <laughs> coffee and tea as well? I never cook a bad meal, Michael. Hey, Karen? No, she's a chef. She's amazing. <laughs> But you still had your problems, didn't you, you know, uh, with the boat? You lost three rudders, I think, during the event, and you even needed to borrow an emergency rudder from a rival team, you know, mid-leg. You, I think, got got close to them, and you, they managed to get a rudder across to you. You know, did it feel at times that just everything was going against you? Yeah, it did a lot, yeah. We did have a lot of breakages. We didn't lose three rudders. We broke... Um, the tip off the rudder um, twice, so that was okay. That was still manageable. Um, obviously, you're not up to full speed, but it's just the tip of the rudder breaking. But then on the final leg going into England, now the rudder did shear right off in mid-Atlantic, so we had nothing. Uh, and um, those were the days before they made us carry a spear rudder because the next race you had to carry a spear rudder on board. But uh, Uruguay Natural did have a spear rudder on board. But they were sailing a maxi and we were on a 60-foot yacht. And also the rudder was made out of steel. But um, it was really our only, the only thing that we had to get us to finish. We were mid-Atlantic, you know. So we had this amazing um, transfer of the rudder in the middle of the ocean. And uh, I could tell you that was quite something um them uh, you know getting a rope between the two boats and transferring over this big bloody steel rudder which would have weighed i don't know 50 kilo or something is ridiculous and then we had to hang it off the back of our boat um on a on gudgeons on the back of the boat and uh, we were worried it was going to pull the back of the boat out because it was you know a glass boat with a bloody steel rudder on it it was um yeah, anyway, we managed to get it on and uh, we attached a jury rig tiller to it and had to sail the last, I don't know, 1,000 thousand miles with this um, big heavy thing hanging off the back of our boat. <laughs> so suffice to say, when we, when we uh, finished the race, we were quite happy that 
we got there in one piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's, I guess, you know, reflect a lot on the, the overall race. Was it what you had imagined it might be? You know, how did you look back on that after that first lap? Oh, I wanted to go again straight away. So I've got to do this again. I, uh, despite all those um, crazy moments, uh, I loved most of it. Um, I think we all have a love-hate relationship with the ocean when we do these races, and I would say that the, yeah, I, I basically wanted to do it again. I wanted to get back, and, and I wanted to do it properly. And um, I think, fortunately, EF gave me the opportunity to do it uh, God, 100% better than what we did with Heineken. Heineken, we we just survived to get around the world. EF was a slightly different story. But, um, yeah, so I was, I just, yeah, didn't want to stop. Just wanted to carry on, basically. We'll, we'll jump into that EF story really shortly. I've just got one, I guess, just to wrap up that Heineken experience because when you guys arrived in Fort Lauderdale there was a message from Hillary Clinton who was at that time the first lady congratulating you on your achievements and saying that you were great role models for for females everywhere you know what was that like for you to hear and, and did it remind you even though things weren't necessarily going all that well in a racing sense that what you were doing out there was helping sort of break barriers down Oh, yeah, I mean, that message, actually, it's funny when you uh, alluded to that, I uh, had forgotten. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it, does, it was amazing. It was like, what? Hillary Clinton? She's heard about us? Uh, and then the message that she sent us, yeah, it was fantastic. And, you know, the Americans are great at that sort of thing, aren't they? It, um applauding achievements um, and no we felt really very good that we were at least getting some sort of message across we might not have been doing that well in the race but uh, and we did find that in America you know the women would come up to us and they would just thought that we were you know amazing what we were doing was was fantastic and and that, yeah, that certainly gave you a great amount of um, achieve, sense of achievement for just just doing that. Yeah, it was wonderful. So, Lee, you were with the EF um, boat for 97-98, and this is where you came in, Karen. You were also brought on board for the 97-98 race with EF Education. So just, let, just need a little bit of a backstory from you as well. You know, How did you become involved in that campaign? Um, well, in that campaign, it was totally because of Leah that I got bought in. So um, I'd sailed with Leah, you know, around the Auckland Harbour and MRXs, Young 88s, 1020s. And then we did the Sydney Hobart with Gail Melrose. Um, was it 95, I think? 94. Right, yeah. 94. 94. And, um, and that was my first real taste of offshore. I'd bought, helped my brother bring his boat Frenzy back from Noumea before that. But that was my only offshore I'd ever done. And then we did that Hobart and loved it. And, yeah, I guess I made an impression on Leah because um, we got I got invited along with Bridget Suckling and Kelly Mulcahy to go up to Sweden and trial for the EF boat, and I was just so excited. So what was your background up to that point? You know, was it 
a fairly traditional pathway or was it mainly yeah oh well yes and no probably not I never did anything like the youth scheme um my family owned sail making company that you know was Boyd and McMaster sail makers so while everyone else was out you know playing tennis every weekend we were on the boat every weekend and mum would sail every Tuesday night with a group of girls and dad would sail every Wednesday night and I'd go out on every race with them you know, back then we had the big one of the biggest boats in Auckland, which was thirty six feet, um, called River Rebel, and it was you know it was a pretty cool boat, and that's where I did a lot of my racing. And out of Bucklands Beach Yacht Club, I you know a lot of the guys down there were amazing, took me under their wing and taught actually taught me how to sail. There was I never got any sort of oh you're a girl you can't do it. it was, I was always getting asked to go on really cool boats. So yeah, there was just a lot of encouragement as I was growing up and. A lot of time spent on the water, but not the traditional, um, you know, squadron youth scheme or anything like that, or dinghy sailing. I, you know, I'm hopeless in dinghies. <laughs> so you get invited to you this and trial. Me both. Yeah. <laughs> you get invited to this trial. You know, how do you approach it? Because I'm guessing you want to make an impression, but you don't want to be overbearing. So people think, God, I can't go to sea with this person for nine months. You know, how do you actually attack a, a trial like that? Because it is an amazing opportunity, but one you've got to take. I had no idea what I was walking into. And we flew from Auckland up to Sweden and turned up in the um, Stockholm, I think it was. And, um, basically got put straight on the boat and we were out testing for the day and you know I was sailing with all these legends and they were talking about things you know like the different sails and wind angles and trim and I was just I was had I was clueless would be <laughs> the honest way to say <laughs> and so I just sat back and and just took it all in and tried to learn as much as possible without um you know just trying to absorb everything and um and it obviously worked, yeah. So I was really lucky. I think because Leah bought, you know, three other Kiwis up with her, and they wanted it to be a real international team. And so we were, we thought, you know, we were really only fighting for one other spot between me, Kelly, and Bridget. And um, it turned out that they, you know, they thought that me and Bridget worked really well together and kept us both on. But it's funny because when we went up to Sweden, Bridget and I hated each other with a passion because. We were always vying for the best positions on the MRX. You know, we'd sail with all the different guys, the salt houses and everyone. And, you know, they'd be like, oh, damn, Bridget got to do the bow on that boat. And I was really angry. And then I'd get to do the bow on a young 88. And so, I'd, you know, she'd be annoyed with me. And so when we were in Sweden together, I think the competition between us probably made us both better to the point that, you know, um, we were chosen. So, yeah, very lucky. So Laird obviously talked about the campaign, the Heineken campaign, having lots of issues, particularly with the boat. But EF were quite determined to give the women's team an equal chance with the men's boat. Um, EF, uh, EF language. Yeah. and language. Yeah. Yeah. So they were pretty much identical to the men's boat, uh, EF language. So Karen, what was, uh, Leah, what was that like to hear, given the, the issues that you'd had on Heineken? Oh, my goodness me, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was just like, I can't believe they're giving us this opportunity. It's amazing. And um, the great thing about the whole uh, period leading up to the 97-98 race, we had, I think we had about oh, 16 months or something. Uh, we trained with the guys the whole time. And uh, we sailed, we mixed the crews, 
We did all our testing together. Um, we learned so much, didn't we, Karen? I mean, yeah. we did offshore deliveries with them, um, you know, lining up in there. And, of course, you know, we've got Paul Kayhart, Paul Kayhart Stevie Erickson, Kimo Worthington, uh, all all the America's Cup boys. There's so much knowledge, and we were just, just soaking it all up from them. And, uh, the and learning one- the... Um- Sorry, I was just going to say, remember, I mean, it was actually the time that we were developing the um, the Code Zeros, the very first That's Code right. Zeros came out of yeah. that team, you know, and we were there learning all of that. So we were yeah. just, yeah, so blessed. And the wonderful Magnus Olsen, who was uh, was a Swedish, um, I don't know if you know who Magnus is, Michael, a uh, very famous Swedish sailor who he was um, pretty much the head of EF, as far as the sailing team goes, and he was just a wealth of knowledge. And he was exceptionally helpful to us girls. He was mm. amazing. So it was a fantastic opportunity. So given that level playing field and, and Fred Anderson, who was managing the venture for EF, you know, said the female team had a goal to beat the males. Um, Karen, was this the case? Because in some circles it was being billed as the battle of the sexes. Um, yeah, I mean, any person that's in a competitive sport wants to win. So, yeah, and we knew that we were going to separate off into our own boats. And um, and that was always our goal, is to, you know, try and beat some of these guys and just show them that we can do it. Um, yeah, there was still a lot of doubts floating around, but, um, I, you know, we were desperate to, to prove ourselves. So what was it like then, Leah, when, you know, the first few legs didn't go that well and you were at the back of the fleet? Oh, you know, really disheartening. Um, looking back now, there are a couple of things, of course, you look back now that you would have changed and and maybe we would have done better. Um, but, yeah, it was disheartening. Um, but we tried, we always tried our hardest we were very competitive on that boat weren't we Karen we were we were yeah. really driven we every single report that came in we were you know um, dying to know how we were doing and um, we worked I reckon we worked really really hard look we just had we had moments of bad luck we had we had moments of brilliance um but yeah I mean we every now and then we're just kind of just lose I don't know drop off the back of a weather system and and you know and watch the other boats streak ahead and you just there was nothing you could do because you just couldn't get catch the same pattern and couldn't you know that the boats ahead would all be doing 15 knots and you're doing five or something because you've you've yeah just dropped off so um kind of sometimes real hard to pick up your spirits but um but we did. We always managed to just push on and uh, do our best. Yeah. And um, let's just talk a little bit about what life was like on board. You know, you, you're trying to get every little ounce of speed out of out of these boats. But Karen, just talk me through a typical day. Um, a typical day on the boat was we had a watch system, rolling watch system. So you'd do four hours on deck and four hours off normally, unless the crap was hitting the fan um and so in that four hours on deck you'd be 
you know, trimming, steering, changing sails, trying to keep the boat going as fast as possible. So, you know, these things are always changing and, you know, you'd have sort of the 10-minute rule before you started putting up a new sail and there'd be some watches where you just changed sail after sail after sail and then there'd be others that you're just powering through the Southern Ocean where you're just sitting, you know, grinding or trimming um, constantly for four hours. And then on the four hours off, there's when you had to do all of your, you know, everything else. So cleaning the boat, you know, bailing it out, um, getting some sleep, getting some food into you, um, media stuff, you know, on the Amma Sports, I've looked after a lot of the media. So we're having to edit footage and send it off the boat. Um, yeah, so, you know, in the Southern Ocean, you'd only be getting probably, luckily, if you're getting two hours sleep at a time, because by the time you get downstairs, get something to eat, get undressed, get into your bed, fall asleep, and then you've got to get up half an hour before watch to make sure you're back on deck again. So, yeah, it was just a, one day rolled into the next. So, you know, would, given the, the lack of sleep, you know, would tempers often get a little bit frayed, or was everyone sort of really... Um cognizant of, of keeping things on an even keel um oh i'd be lying if i didn't say tempers didn't get frayed every now and then with tired people but um you just it's amazing what you can do on little sleep i mean i i'm a real sleeper i love my sleep eh? and um you know if i knew i was on an off watch and i knew i wasn't going to get my sleep I'd get pretty shitty thinking, geez, I'm going to be awake for, for 12 hours, you know, and uh, and God knows if I am going to get any sleep after that third watch, you know. Um, but you just kind of, and then you just make fun of it. You just go, oh, well, whatever, I'll survive. I'll get some sleep at some point and I'll be all right. Um but I don't know if Kieran remembers, I'm a real dreamer as well and I used to have some radical dreams on the boat and the girls used to get used to me coming up on deck and talking about their, my dreams and, you know, trying to make sort of fun of what little sleep you did get and so, oh, God, you know, I was asleep for half an hour, but, boy, I had this crazy dream. Uh, <laughs> um, but then uh, on the flip side, you have the legs like when you're in the doldrums or anywhere where you've got light airs and it's everything's going well you get tons of sleep because um everything's just smoothly going on and they've got everything sorted on deck you don't you're not needed for sail changes so you get quite a bit of sleep so uh yeah it's a bit up and down but yeah there are plenty of times where you are very tired but you just you just gotta make uh good you just gotta pick each other up and you know, make someone a coffee. You know they're tired. Hey, I'll make you a coffee. I know you're feeling shitty, but here we go. That sort of stuff. Is that where the Leah Fanstone uh, charm comes in again, is it? Of course. Every time. <laughs> that's what I want. That's how I won Dawn over. I made a coffee all the time. <laughs> um, maybe do you recall the name Rick? Tomlinson, who was a photographer on board your boat for a 35-day leg from Southampton to Cape Town. And he said, and I quote, after two weeks, I realized there are only three topics of, of conversation on any race boat, sailing, food, and sex. After three weeks, there is only one subject, food. And after four weeks, food. Karen, is that accurate? 
<laughs> Poor wreck. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty accurate. Poor wreck. Oh my goodness, I can't. Oh, God. <laughs> he. Oh, he. Yeah, some of the things he saw and had to be put through with a bunch of girls, especially going across the equator. And I mean, you know, he just. He'd come up from um, below deck and just into a, a sea full of almost naked girls, you know, just in bikini top, you know, tops and bottoms, and he'd just yeah. be like, oh, my goodness. You know, thousands of guys would probably jump at the chance, but he's just like, will you put some clothes on, girls? <laughs> um, yeah, he was, he was amazing. He was fantastic to have on the boat. What was, you know, people talk a lot about that, that first crossing of the equator and the and you come face to face with King Neptune. What was it like for each of you um, starting with Leah? Jeez, I can't even remember the first time because that was on Heineken. Uh, I literally can't remember going over the equator, um, probably because I was fixing a sail or something. Um, and uh, I'm uh, my most memorable crossing. Uh, was on EF when uh, and Karen can go into this a bit more because because I'd been over twice before. Um, you know, I was King Neptune and um, and I was able to dish out the the dirty work on the girls who were going over the first time. So that was very memorable and loads <laughs> of fun. But Karen might want to uh, talk about that a bit more. Oh, they. Um, I mean, I was so excited to go across the equator, and I remember counting. You know, looking at the the nav station and counting down the. The Latin longs until we got there, and um, but they they collected up the girls that had been over the equator already had collected up food and whatever, um, flying fish that had landed on the deck and everything, and put it all in a bucket <laughs> for like four days and left it at the back of the boat. So by the time we got to the equator, it was reeking, and then they, you know, loved to plaster it all over us, and yeah, um, some stories came out, but I, I never had it bad like. You know, there was no shaving eyebrows or anything like that, thank goodness. But it was, yeah, it was memorable. <laughs> Smelly. It was funny. Yeah. But there were also some tough moments, though, weren't there, in that race? You know, at one time, your spear sails fell overboard. Uh, I think you were in heavy seas. And as the story goes, the crew retrieved them when some reached over the side while others were hanging on to their ankles, you know, Karen, how sketchy is that? Oh, it was worse than that because we, Leah, you had to go and you put your dry suit on, eh? And we actually put you in the water because we had to get some yeah. ropes around the whole stack. So we'd done a full wipeout as we're going into a maneuver. So all the sails were already on the wrong side of the boat. And then we were, I think, going into a jibe and we broached instead. So all the water ballast had been transferred to Leward. All the sails were to lured and we were supposed to jibe, but instead we wiped out. So everything was just underwater on that lured side. And all the, the whole sail stacks, I don't know how many sails there were, had flipped over. They were still tied on and they were in a big sort of sail bag, but they'd fully flipped over the side of the boat, taken out all the staunchins, and it was really rough. And it took us hours to get it back on the boat. But Leah actually had to go into the water. So we had her on a halyard. And then she was sort of having to try and dive down under the, the stack to get a rope around it. So then we could winch it back onto the boat. It was, yeah, it was pretty bad. How did you get volunteered for that job, Leah? 
Well, because I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was Leah's the watch captain and the leader, and she's like, nah, this is what's happening. I'm doing it, and super strong and fit too. So, yeah. Uh, it was terrifying. We were in the Southern Ocean. It was freezing. Um, it was absolutely terrifying. But, yeah, someone had to do it. And and Karen's right. I felt like, no, nah, this is my, my you know, it was on, happened on my watch. Um, and this is, I'm going to do it. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. And then the, the big one was when your rig came down in the Southern Ocean. Um, talk me through what happened there, Karen, because I understand you were on deck at the time. Yeah, it was, oh, it's never a good feeling when, you know, you know your boat by then, you know every sound, every block banging on the deck or every rope. And so you know when there's a bad sound and I just knew straight away that the rig was coming down. Yeah. Oh, gives me chills even now thinking about it. It's um, not a fun thing to have happen. And we were in the middle of nowhere, you know, like no one could come and help us. Um we had a decision whether we would turn around and go back to the Chathams, but that was upwind. Um, or we just, you know, deal with it and try and get to South America. So that's what we did. What were spirits like on board afterwards, Leah? Oh, for myself personally, pretty low, especially as I was responsible for the rig. Um, actually, what had happened was, Kieran, um, just rewinding, um, what happened after the Chathams is we actually had a um, shroud break, a vertical shroud break uh, between the second and third spreader. And that was the point where we wondered whether we should turn back because we were close enough to the Chathams to turn back. Um, but we decided to carry on because we could jury rig um, a, ver um, a vertical with rope but we knew that the rig was compromised, so we had to be extremely careful when we were sailing on, I think it was Port Tack. Anytime we were on port, that side of the rig was compromised. And we are in the Southern Ocean, for goodness sake. But unfortunately, that leg, we did a lot more reaching than downwind sailing, and a lot, and a lot of it was on Port Tack. I mean, I remember this well because I was in charge of the rig and I was just terrified that the thing was going to come crashing down at any minute. Uh, and it did. And and by then we were, I think we were about 1,800 nautical miles to Cape Horn. Might have been a little bit less than that. So we had to um, get to Cape Horn under jury rig. So I, when it broke, I was like, oh, yep, there she goes. Yep, that's done. We, I just knew it was going to happen. But I was extremely low afterwards. Luckily, in those days, we always smoked cigarettes, so we had tons of cigarettes on board and just puffed our way out of our misery, really. But <laughs> so, yeah, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. But then again, much like when you're lack, lacking sleep, you just got to pick each other up and soldier on. Everyone was really good to me, Alia, you know. It's okay. We've just got to get on with this and get to Cape Horn. So you did pull out of the leg, though, didn't you? Um, you know, what point did you do that and, and decide to put your 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 motor on? What what was the decision behind that, Karen? I don't actually remember when we made that official call, but you don't carry that much fuel on the boat. We only had enough to run the generator, so um, we didn't actually have the option to motor until we were 
we got picked up by a, a tugboat out of a Shire. We couldn't even, you know, we couldn't motor at all. Well, I think I can remember. Uh, sorry, Kieran, but um, what 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 happened was, Michael, what we'd planned was to get to Cape, get to Cape Horn, get around into the Beagle Channel, which is what takes you up to Ushuaia, and then we were met by a boat that towed us up the Beagle Channel to Ushuaia. And we, we at that point, we had intended on rejoining the leg. We were going to try uh, whatever we could to sail the leg. So we they took a uh, position of where the boat picked us up and where we officially left the leg. And then when we um, got the mast put back in in a shwire and we motored back down the Beagle Channel to that exact position uh, to hoist the sails and we basically rejoined the leg. And we had about, I don't know, 10 days. Oh, no, I don't know what it was. Seven days or something to finish the leg. And we, at that point, we could have done it. But then something else happened. I think wind dropped out or something at some point. And that was when we had to make the call. So when we were um, had rejoined, a couple of days back in, something happened. And we knew realistically if we didn't turn the engine on, we wouldn't make the restart of the next leg. So that's when we pulled out. So you finally arrived in Brazil, but you only had two days to get ready for that next leg to Fort Lauderdale. How hard, Karen, was it to turn around so quickly? Um, it does sound like, though, the men's team EF language helped you out a bit. But, man, must have been hard after you'd been at sea for, what, 35 days or something yeah, to then have that- only two days. That was really hard. I yeah, part of me didn't want to go, but um, you know, you know, you're always going to. But it wasn't. We we got so much help from everybody. You know, it wasn't just our boys' team. It was everyone. Everyone was there to meet us when we got in, and yeah, it was. It, I mean, it was a cool feeling. You know, I was young and I was gutted that I was missing the party in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, I, I don't know about you, Karen, but I. I can't even remember those days. I mean, I remember arriving. I remember arriving. Uh, and I remember leaving. I don't know what happened in the two days in between. I just cannot remember it at all. But I remember leaving. And, and that night was a heavy downwind night and uh, dark as dark as ever, dark as the inside of a cow, as Ross Field would say. Um. And we were full on fanging downwind and we're just, you know, we were knackered and we were worried that the, the rig that was in the boat was going to hold up because it was a full on night and we were all on tender hooks, just like, geez. What? <laughs> but yeah, 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 it was, it was pretty exciting to say the least. <laughs> Let's just jump ahead to that penultimate leg. Um from the US to France, because you guys finished fourth in that league and even beat EF Language home, who went on to win the race overall. Karen, what was different about that league? I think um, what it shows is that we had learnt to sail the boat properly by then. Like I've said this a couple of times to people who ask me, you know, what's gone wrong in the teams because, you know, the girls' teams didn't do so well. We you know, in all of our training and everything, we never got the chance really to sail as a girls' team and to bond and grow as a girls' team and do the miles ourselves. And so, honestly, I think, you know, any girls' team that's going to go sailing around the world, they've got to 
sail the boat themselves. And, you know, by halfway around the world, we were we were onto it. We knew how to sail the boat for us. You know, you, you sail a boat differently um, as a female team, just, you know, you know, play to your strengths and weaknesses. And um, I think by then it was all just coming together for us. But, you know, by then the race is almost over. So it's one of the things people need to look to in the, in the future, I think, is um, let, letting the girls have the time on their boat before the race. So what sort of impact, Leah, did this make? You know, what sort of statement do you think it made to finish so high up in that uh, that league? Oh, just that, hey, look, guys, you know, you can take us seriously. You can see that we can do it. All we just needed was a, you know, there's a little bit of luck involved in sailing, isn't there? All we needed was a, a stroke of luck. and um, But also, as I totally agree with Karen, um, we'd, we'd learned how to sail the boat. I remember that leg really well. It was an Atlantic crossing, and generally the Atlantic crossing is pretty heavy uh, up north where that leg runs but it was actually quite a light leg um, which I think was advantageous to us because we would always go well in the light Um, we struggled against the guys in the heavy years and I remember we the sail changes were coming thick and fast for a few days and I remember that's where we made our gains I don't know if you can remember that Kieran there was a period about four days in the middle of the leg where there was bugger all wind and we worked so hard and we that's where we got our gains and then we managed to just stay, you know, keep... God, we were fighting. We were so desperate to get on the podium and I can't remember how far, how far behind third we were. I think it was pretty close, but um, we were so desperate to get a podium. But fourth was damn good and... Yeah, it was pretty, it was a great feeling. And I think it was just rewarding, you know. We could all pat each other on the back and go, yep, yeah, this is this was great. And we deserved it because we worked really hard on that leg. So you finished with a short hop back to England and, and were ninth in the overall standings. Um, how do you look back now on that race, Karen? You know, was it a success and meet that kind of goal that you had at the start? Yeah, personally, it, it was a success. You know, there's there's some downtimes like losing the rig and you know coming in behind the guys all the time. It was pretty frustrating and goes back to that competitive spirit. But you know, for me, it was a huge success. I'd sailed around the world, and that had been my dream for such a long time. So, yeah, tick that one off was just awesome. So, Phil, you, Leah, it was your last lap around the the globe. You said after the first one, you immediately wanted to go again. Where was your head at about going again for a third one? Um, I wasn't in a good place for wanting to go again. Um, I kind of had a few terrifying moments, and at that point, for some reason, I started just losing my confidence. I was really worried that something really drastic was going to happen. You know, we'd lost people. Yeah, the people had been lost overboard I don't know what it was maybe I just kind of twice around and had so many things go wrong I was just over it and I was just worried that another time might be pushing it and I might just end up you know having something catastrophic happen I don't know that's how I felt it was quite sort of um 
yeah, negative, but absolutely stoked to have done it again. I knew I wanted to be involved again. I, I didn't want to finish my career. Um, and at some point, not long after that, um, I decided that, you know, if anything, I was going to work for a team. And, and you know, and that happened, I ended up being shore manager for Team News Corp in 2001 and two, which was great because um, I think my experience of doing the race helped with, you know, help running at the team um, from a shore side. Um, but, yeah, I just kind of had lost a bit of my nerve and didn't feel that confident anymore. Did, um, did it ever come back? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. I like. I'm pretty sure. Right now, I'd love to go and do an ocean pass, ocean passage. Um, and after that race, oh, I didn't stop. I mean, I still did plenty of racing. I spent nine doing the Maxi Worlds and a whole lot of delivery stuff for a couple of years, but um, and thoroughly enjoyed it. But um, but I was a lot more nervous. It's a bit like. You know, with Karen, how she felt the first time she went around and, like, the first time I went around. You're so green. You you don't know what's going to happen. And and you have moments where you are a bit worried, but you just get over it. But after the second time around, I'd had so many moments like that that I was just kind of, like, on the edge thinking, oh, I don't know if I really want to go through all that again. <laughs> It was a bit wussy of me, really, but um, it's, it was how I felt, yeah. I don't think anyone can accuse you of being a wuss. Um, <laughs> so, Karen, you you were involved in that next one because you sailed with uh, Amma Sports 2, which, like yep. the EF campaigns, they also had a men's and a woman's boat. You know, what was that experience like for you in that, that second campaign? Yeah, in some ways it was very similar to um, EF. You know, we... We trained together with the guys, um, the boats were built together and all the testing and everything. So a very similar sort of setup, um, but a bit more Kiwi-fied with adults running it. And um, yeah, I was desperate to do it a second time and um, yeah, loved it just as much the second time. There's, you know, there's so many things that you look back on and you think we could have done better or if we'd changed this or, you know, made these decisions, we could have... I don't know, improved our standings. But to me, I just wanted to keep sailing. I just, yeah, I was all about going offshore and doing more. So tell me about your experience um, near the Titanic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the, um, yeah, that Atlantic crossing, um, yeah, I've lost a rig in both uh, the Whitbread and the Volvo, which I don't, you know, it's not a great claim to fame. Um, we were pretty much over where the Titanic sank when our rig came down the second time. And that time I was downstairs, but again, I knew straight away what had happened. But I, there's, because we had footage on the, you know, we had cameras on the back of the boat by then. And um, they'd be, if something happened, you pushed a panic button and it would, it would record uh, what was going on. So someone had obviously recorded what was happening as the rig came down. And I was one of the ones in charge of the rig at that time. And, and, um, you know, I thought, oh, shit, I've got to get straight on deck. But I was in my thermals. And so I ran up on deck, like a, a done chicken sort of thing, did a lap of the deck. And then in my mind, I remember thinking, oh, shit, I haven't even got any wet weather gear on. I better go downstairs. So I ran straight back downstairs again. And it was all caught on camera. And I looked like such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was, 
that was pretty horrific because it was just on the leading edge of a huge storm that was coming and we were in a lot of trouble. Um, so the rig actually came down. It wasn't too windy, but it was expected to build to about 50 to 60 knots and it was coming straight over where we were with no rig. And so we cut the whole rig away and secured it and they actually sent out an icebreaker tug. I think it was like about a 100 footer tug to come and tow us in to port because we were going to be in, you know, deep shit. So they um, they towed us behind this big tug and by the time they started towing us, it was blowing about 50 knots. And so it was on a big stretchy tow rope and so the, the tug would take off and then the tow rope would take up and it had a lot of stretch in it and it would sort of jettison the boat forward and we'd go surfing almost up alongside the tug and then it would slowly slow down again and then the the rope would take up again and we'd fly off again and I that is the most scary thing I've ever been on a boat for like I think it was a 24-hour tow we broke two tow ropes on the way and it yeah it was just horrific and it was freezing cold it was snowing and um yeah we finally got off the boat and I can't even remember where, somewhere up Newfoundland way. And we just walked straight off the boat up to a pub in our wet weather gear and sat there for a day, just like. <laughs> I've never been so scared in my life. I thought the I thought the primary winches were going to rip out of the boat every time the rope took up. And we actually had rules on the boat that you were only allowed to move around the boat when we were surfing down the waves, not, you know, as the tow was releasing, because we were that worried that primaries were going to rip out and go flying off the boat. So people listening to this will be going, why on earth would you want to go to sea and endure this kind of stuff? And you, yeah, guys, did it, the, you guys did it twice. Yeah. Those are the stories. Character that building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to, uh, I was just thinking, because, um, sorry, I just wanted to interrupt. Um, as you do this, you sort of remember things and uh, – just going back to when our rig broke uh, on uh, EF um, and I was talking about what happened at the beginning, um, I couldn't think of the right term. Uh, it was a diagonal shroud that broke, not a vertical. I mean, if it had been a vertical, we would have been in trouble big time. Uh, I just want to make sure that I'm saying the right thing because any sailor listening to this will be going, oh, well, how could that happen? So it was a diagonal that broke, which um, made it possible for us to carry on. Yeah. So, Karen, that, that just wanted to clear that up. Glad you did. So, Karen, the, the, that um, crew the, was the last all women's crew that entered the race until Team SCA in 2014 and 15. You know, and it sort of ended, I guess, a period of quite a number of women's, all-women's crews. Why do you think there was such a break before the next one? Yeah, it wasn't for lack of trying, that's for sure. I mean, we were desperate to try and keep some of the team together and, and try and do it again. And we, we tried really hard to get money um, to try and do that. But it just never came off um, for whatever reason. Um, yeah, and so that was, a, you know, that sort of, block that I was talking about where we lost a lot of um, skill and, and knowledge is just because if you don't keep doing it in a regular cycle, people are going to drop off and the new ones, you know, there's not new ones coming through. Um, so when SCA announced that they were, you know, going to take it on, it was, that was fantastic. 
So you've you've talked about trying to be involved in another ocean race at some stage. You know, what sort of capacity would you like that to be? Oh, I feel like my body's getting, <laughs> I don't know, some of the, you know, there's some legend guys out there that have done six or seven Volvos and I take my hat off to them. And, you know, even up to a couple of years ago, I really, really wanted to do another one. Um, but, yeah, I, I would love to be involved in some way. Sharing my knowledge is becoming a really important thing for me now, like, you know, training or mentoring people that want to come through. So, even if I don't sail or, you know, I'd love to go and do another Southern Ocean League again, but I think my mum would have a crisis. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, you know, maybe a league here or there or something, but whether that's ever going to happen with the way the world is at the moment, it might, yeah. But just to be involved, I definitely still want to do that. Well, you were involved in the um, 2018 Sydney Hobart race, and that was also part of an all-women's crew, a memorably... Um, you finished second on handicap in that race. Um, what did that result do, do you think, for women's offshore sailing? Um, it definitely highlighted that, um, you know, we've, we can do it. And um, if you're given the right resources, the opportunities are there and you can make it happen. We had a fantastic crew on that boat. And from the minute I turned up in Sydney, it, it was just we didn't I'm not saying we didn't need the guys but there's there's a massive skill set within women sailing now to be able to you know do rig um you know rig settings and sail settings and and looking after boats and stuff ourselves um we were given a massive opportunity by the the Oatley family you know being given that boat and we wanted to do them proud and I think we really did um and that was a fantastic experience um from start to finish. So COVID's obviously got in the way of a lot of these sorts of things, but how do you continue that once we can all go sailing again and, and international borders open up? You know, how do you kind of get keep that momentum rolling? Yeah, well, things like, um, you know, women being, women being included in a lot of the teams now is definitely going to help um, just to keep that knowledge and to grow it all the time. Um, I don't know, we need someone out there with a, the, $10 million to give us some money to go sailing is what we need, <laughs> 20 or $30 million. But that's not easy to come by these days, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's a hard one because you do need to be funded well to do any of this. And without that funding, it's really not possible. To anyone out there with big pockets, you can contact me at yachtingnz.org.nz <laughs> and I'll pass on the details to Kira McMaster, who's going to set up an ocean racing team. Sounds great. Yep, let's yeah. do it. Yeah, I'll help. <laughs> cool. Before I let you go, there's a couple of things I just want to round out. And, um, you know, one of them is probably from, from both of you have with so much experience, you know, what advice, Leah, would you give to young sailors out there, but particularly young female ones interested in going offshore sailing? You know, what do they need to do? Um, oh, they just have to uh, expose, oh, God, for want of a better expression, just expose themselves and get get involved Um you know, and unfortunately, a lot of that ta is the old deep pocket thing. It takes money. You know, you've got to, if any of us was in Europe right now, the sailing is all going ahead. You know, you just got to get over there and just get on boats. And um, 
and I know a couple of girls who are doing that. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty tricky, but, um, well, it doesn't rewind a bit, doesn't necessarily take money. I mean, I didn't have money to go sailing, but um, in New Zealand, if you're talking about girls in New Zealand, um, much like Karen and I, you've just got to get on the keel boats and get out there racing and um, meet meet good people who will help you and um, direct you. Uh, we are lucky in this country that, like all the uh, very successful sailors, are all very personable. You can walk up to them and have a chat to them. If you want to, you know, get some help from them, they'll all talk to you. They haven't got that big of egos that they want, you know, anybody who shows an interest in the sport and needs some help those people will help them. So, um, yeah, just get out there and get involved. Get on a crew. And you can teach them how to be charming. Yeah, exactly. Talk your way onto a boat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, Karen, you've you've kind of talked um, previously about, you know, having strings to your bow. Um, you were a medic, um, you know, so that – you offered another skill as well as just being a good yachty. Can you maybe just elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I, I definitely think that that helped me um, a lot. And also just putting your hand to anything. Like um, one of the big things I tell a lot of people that ask me, you know, how do I get into it is you've got to be the first one on the boat. You've got to be the last one to leave the boat. You've got to be the first one to put your hand up to be mopping the bilges and to lift that sail and to get on the grinders. You know, those people get noticed because you're there, you're energetic, you're keen to learn and you're not cocky. You know, the people that are just have got tickets on themselves and think they're too good to pick up a sail or a sponge aren't going to make it in the industry so you know the people that put their heads down and work real hard and do extra courses you know the um if not a medic course but you know the offshore courses learn some sail making like you know Leah and I both we learned sail making we learned rigging um just all those little things that make you stand out above somebody else that's also going for the same job as you. Um, and Kiwis have a really good work ethic um, in general. You know, we're quite well known in the world for that. Um, but, yeah, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the jobs I've got is because, you know, I'm the first there, last to leave and always put my hand up for anything. First to the pub? Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Drink most of the guys under the table, but... <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> what what plans do you both have for the future? I guess um, starting with you, Leah. You know, is sailing still something that's on the cards, or you've sort of moved on from that world? Oh no! Oddly enough, in these times, you know, we're all stuck here in little old New Zealand, and uh, I've got some you know friends on Facebook who are sailing overseas. And I just look at them with slight envy. Um, but, no, I, I actually would love to, the sort of sailing I want to do now is uh, go to Europe and spend a season there and sail on uh, first world problems, sail on super yachts and things like that. Um, that sounds kind of um, contrived, but the thing is I can do that because I know people 
who run big, big boats. Um, I know people who still do the circuit. And to go up there and just spend a season on big boats and race would be loads of fun. Um, I think that that's the sort of sailing that I'd like to do, mainly because, you know, I'm older and um, I suppose you would call that nice sailing. So I've done the hard yards. Now I'm only interested in the nice stuff. <laughs> what about you, Karen? You were sort of involved in the industry in a, a roundabout way as, as involved with predict wind, but what sort of sailing ambitions do you still have? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I still love all the sailing that I do around Auckland. I'm part owner in an MRX and we've got an amazing girls crew that, you know, we've sailed together for the last 30 years and we still have a lot of fun. So I enjoy that day-to-day aspect of it. Um, working for Predict Wind, I, I talk to people all day, every day around the world, cruising with their families and, and living the life. And I, you know, I really want to do that on on my bucket list, things like, you know, Panama Canal and Galapagos and all of those. So, yeah, I just um, got a couple of teenage kids to get sorted first, which is my top priority and always has been. And um, and then, yeah, go and do some more, whether it's cruising or whatever comes my way in the future. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I just – I love being on the water and I love being – at sea you know where you can't even see the land and just you know doing passages is is my happy place well hopefully we're back there sooner rather than later um mm. now thanks so much uh, just before you go i need to ask each of you your worst wipeout ever um given some of the stories that we've had there's got to be a couple of decent ones in there so leah take us away oh lordy well, yeah, there are. Oh, what do you mean wipe out? I never wiped out. Nah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, well, the one in particular that jumped into my head was on Heineken. I can't actually remember where it was. I think it might have been off the coast of South America. And it was one of those black as the inside of a cow nights again. It always happens at night. We were sailing downwind in heavy years and we would uh, we had a polled out jib top. Now, it's not the safest way of sailing downwind in a heavy, heavy years, to be fair. Um, and we Chinese jibed and I was on deck and the boat lay over for quite a while. And um, I just remember hanging on to the lifelines while the boat was on its side trying not to fall in the water. Um, And then when we eventually got the boat righted, um, I just remember being up on the foredeck trying to get this blimmin' jib top down, um, which was hanging off the end of a pole. Uh, And in those days, the poles were metal. They weren't carbon, so it was pretty heavy. Uh, and the boat was just rolling from side to side and the bow was going into the freezing water. And it was, I honestly thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to go over the side, um, even though I knew I was harnessed in, but trying to grapple this jib top sail, which was really thick and heavy. You couldn't even grab hold of it. Uh, I don't know how long it took us to get it in, but it was uh, pretty horrific. Uh, I think everyone was on the bow except for the 
person on the helm. So that would have been 10 of us on the bow trying to wrestle this bloody thing to get it back on board. So, yeah, that's the one that springs to mind. Um, yeah. Nasty. So you were in a happy place after that and went and made everyone a, a nice cigarette. cup of coffee, did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and lit everybody a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> which lasted about two seconds because then the waves would come over and wash it out. <laughs> what about you, Karen? Um, mine, I mean, there's been lots of horrific moments, you know, like thought I was going to die in the Bay of Biscay and things, but um, they weren't so much wipeouts. But they, um, I think the, the most devastating for me is um, the second time going around Cape Horn um, so, you know, the first time we um, lost our rig on an EF and so we, you know, got towed around there or limped into there. And so the second time I really wanted to do it well and, you know, we were coming up towards Cape Horn and we were, you know, going along really nicely with a big shoot-up and, um, just, you know, you could see it in the distance and the squall hit us that we weren't ready for. I don't know why. And um, we just wiped out a beauty. And so we were on our ear for God knows how long trying to get this thing down because the locks weren't amazing in those days and so trying to get it on and off the lock to get it to release and it was just a complete nightmare but while that was all happening and you know we're drifting around Cape Horn on our ear the helicopters are coming out to to photograph the girls going around Cape Horn you know we're just on our ear <laughs> the shoot flapping and yeah it took us yeah that was uh, not one of my finest moments not like doing it in the eye of the public, huh? Yeah, I know. So, but you live and learn from everyone. I tell you what. But um, speaking of wipeouts, uh, Amersport One did a monumental wipeout uh, going into Sydney. So just about to um, just about to round into uh, Sydney Heads, and the boats were flying down the coast there's some amazing footage so go into your archives of that race of Amersport one uh wiping out before sydney heads it's it's fantastic footage of them doing a chinese jibe and uh yeah, it's one of the best chinese flight. you'll ever see yeah it's brilliant so yeah. uh anybody for some good wipeout footage sorry <laughs> uh crew from Amersports one but um it's definitely it's definitely worthy of viewing. <laughs> well, there you go, people. There's an additional worst wipeout ever for you. Just a bonus uh, inclusion in today's Broadreach Radio. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Leah and Kieran, um, for spending your time today. It's been really enjoyable to to reminisce about a couple of those great races around uh, the globe and, and also get your thoughts on a number of aspects of offshore sailing and women's sailing. So thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun to uh, reminisce with Leah. It always is. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, always good to remember the good old days. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to everyone who's been sending through feedback and suggestions. It's greatly appreciated. You can do this by emailing me at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Being in Auckland, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting out of lockdown soon and getting back out on the water. In the meantime, I'll work on the next podcast, which should be out in a fortnight. Until then, take care.